0: Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise, with lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast.
1: Welcome into the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. My name is Jeff Finnup from Badgerland Legends, and joining me today is...
0: Mike Huberty, owner of American Ghost Walks.
1: Mike, today we are going to Devil's Lake. All right. Hope you brought your hiking gear.
0: I did. I I can't wait to try to climb on the balance rock.
1: All right. Growing up, I was told it was called Devil's Lake due to its unknown depth.
0: Oh, I didn't even think about that.
1: I was told that people tried to plumb her depths, but were never able to get a reading. The lake was a bottomless pit or perhaps a portal to hell.
0: Wow, that makes it a lot more exciting. And probably before my brother-in-law got married there, we should have told him that.
1: You should have known that going in. And as a Boy Scout, I went there several times. And if I'd known that, I probably would have stayed away.
0: They used to have dances there, I believe, when I was in Boy Scouts.
1: I'm sure they did, jamborees. (laughs) Well, in the 80s and early 90s, you could let your imagination run wild, endlessly speculate. We would argue facts, facts. And today, these facts can easily be refuted with a quick few keystrokes or a voice command in Google. You can simply ask Google, hey, Google, how deep is Devil's Lake? It's 46 feet deep. Okay, so, that's still pretty deep. You can drown in 46 feet? You can. You can drown in a puddle if you're skilled enough. but <laughs> right if
0: your face is in there.
1: It's no bottomless pit. The bottom has been found and scanned. So we've pretty much established it's not a bottomless pit. It's not some ethereal portal. To the underworld. Or is it? Okay. Well, let's talk about how Devil's Lake got its name. Well, long before European settlers came to Wisconsin, the local Indians called the small lake Minnewauken. The name loosely translates to Spirit Lake, Holy Lake, Mystery Lake, or even Sacred Lake. Hmm. The Winnebago Indians also called it Sacred Lake, which is Da. That's what they called it, and it translates roughly to Sacred Lake. So it was a sacred place for a lot of the early inhabitants of the era. Now, it may have been the first French trader to visit the area, Jean-T. Deleron, that we can thank for the name. Deleron first visited the area in 1842 and was quoted as saying, I went and saw the Devil's Lake. The lake is surrounded by high bluffs, and I could not see the sun until 10 or 11 o'clock in the forenoon, and it would disappear from view about 2 or 3 o'clock. I saw a quantity of tobacco that the Indians had deposited there for the Manitou.
0: Oh, the Manitou. So they left tobacco there as an for the spirit.
1: Offering. Yeah. So the first maps of the area referred to the lake as Lake of the Hills. A few years later, a geological survey map printed it as Devil's Lake. And about a decade later, it was named Spirit Lake. By 1872, the name appeared again as Devil's Lake. Now, the Green County Republican, that's a newspaper, they quipped, had the lake been christened by any other name, it would not have attracted so many people. So there's already some mystique in the name.
0: Giving it that name, Devils Lake—a yeah. place that was sacred already to the Indians. Yep. The first European that comes in there describes it. He, you know, he finds the offerings and stuff like that to it.
1: Yep. And the high bluffs and the lack of sun, because I imagine the trees were, you know, untouched, and right. it was probably kind of a, a spooky, mysterious place down there in the valley. So, we know Devil's Lake today as the most visited state park. Pull up to a parking lot midday on any summer day, you'll be challenged to find an open spot in the main parking lot. It's perfect place for picnic, hike, canoe ride, paddle boarding, sunbathing, swimming. Just any outdoor activity, Devil's Lake is the place. Yeah, that's for sure. So, we know of it as a state park, but it's also one of the oldest inhabited sites for humans in Wisconsin. There's a rock shelter called Landbridge State Park, only about uh, 12 miles south of Devil's Lake. And it provides us with that evidence. Now, that's on the basis of radiocarbon assay, geochronology, and stratigraphy.
0: Oh, so, yeah, all right then.
1: They got it all figured out. So it's believed that the people were living on the site either ten to 12,000 years ago. And this is about the time when the uh, Wisconsin Glacier first started melting by the Devil's Lake Gap. Now, if we accept that lesser figure of 10,000 years and we take about 20 years as a generation and we assume that the Indians had inhabited continuously, that means Native Americans had been there for 500 generations. Damn. So there's some deep human history to the site. Now, that's incredibly humbling to think because comparatively, only about seven generations of Europeans have lived there. And they've already like permanently altered the landscape. Right. You know, look no further than some of the kitsch here attractions in the downtown dells just north of oh, yeah, Devil's right. Lake. But- and you'll be like, well, damn, the Indians took a lot better care of this place than we did. <laughs>
0: right. They didn't build storybook gardens or whatever and then yeah. let it fall into ruin.
1: Yeah, exactly. So one of the first settlers to the lake, his name was Louis J. Claude. He was an Englishman. He settled there in 1857. So not long after it was documented De by De Ronde. So you got the French coming in, you got the English coming in. It's kind of the story of Wisconsin where you see kind of the westward expansion where the French were kind of the explorers and then the English were the settlers. Sure. So Claude, he worked as a civil engineer in India. Then he settled in Kentucky, but then he ended up moving north to Wisconsin where he brought property and built on the North Shore home called Eagle Crag. And it was a gothic revival style home. It was adorned with rich aesthetic and architectural detail. So, he was fancy.
0: Yeah, sounds like it. Well, an Englishman coming all the way.
1: Yeah, coming all the way up from India to Kentucky to Wisconsin, settling you know on the shores of pretty much the wilderness. Right, at that the point. frontier. Yep. So, he influenced other English families, the Thompsons, the Gowans, and the Whittingtons, to move to the area and settle. Now, Lewis, he married an American girl. Her name was Elvira. Great name, and then they the had Mistress
0: of Devil's Lake.
1: Right? that's right. <laughs> and they had a daughter and a son. Now they got really creative with their names. Any guesses on the names of the children?
0: My guess would be Elvira and John, Louise, and <laughs> Lewis Jr. <laughs> ah, Louise. Okay, it's
1: Louise and Lewis Jr. So, yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Lewis Jr. is he went on to attend the U.W. Madison. He was classmates with Frank Lloyd Wright. They actually both worked at a renowned architecture firm in Chicago called Aldern Sullivan. And the house, the Claude House Eagle Crag, was a landmark by the North Shore until 1953, when it was finally removed by the state. So that was the first inhabitant, kind of the first permanent structure on Devil's Lake by the Europeans. So 1866, there was actually a hotel era. At Devils Lake, did you know that, Mike?
0: What? That sounds great. I want to stay overnight. I mean, I, I guess I've camped. At you can Devil's camp Lake. there,
1: but yeah, there's no, there's no, no really fancy like, shelter houses, but it was uh, quite the resort. I think the Catskills, but with wasps. <laughs> I guess they would be um, Anglicans of some sort, but yeah. The first hotel opened up, and it was called the Minnewauken House. That name, again, taken from the Sioux Spirit Spirit Water Spirit Lake, roughly Sacred Lake, any of those iterations. So they kind of paid homage to. Sioux name mm-hmm. it was built by Edward Marsh, who was a real estate developer. He developed the property and ended up selling it to a, a guy named Samuel Hartley. so Samuel Hartley was kind of the first hotelier there ah. running the Minnewauken house, and it must have captured great acclaim because it attracted none other than Mary Todd Lincoln
0: oh our favorite spiritualist presidential widow.
1: Yeah. So she kind of ties in here too, but in kind of a negative way. Uh Oh. So this would have been um, after Abe's assassination. And apparently the accommodations at the Minnewaukan house weren't fit for honest Abe's widow. Oh. So Mary Todd asserted that to Hartley, suppose you don't know who I am. I am no ordinary woman. I am Mrs. Abraham Lincoln. Now, Hartley replied flatly, I don't care in purgatory who you are. The room is the best I've got, and I cannot give you a different one. So even, I guess what would be U.S. royalty at that time. Yeah, of course. Was subject to the same accommodations as the the commoner there. Although, if you were resorting at this time at Devil's Lake, you probably had a a few bucks. You had some means. And could you imagine that Yelp review that Mary Todd left?
0: <laughs> right. She, well, I just, the fact that she pulled out the, you know, don't you know who I am? Yeah. You know, Mary Todd. Yeah, bad, and bad that's, form. of course,
1: an apocryphal story. It's hard to document, but it's kind of a great legend of the lake.
0: Yes. So I guess there was not a presidential suite there's uh, no yeah, at the Minnewaka House.
1: There's no Honest Abe suite. So in 1873, railroad tracks were completed to Devil's Lake. And with more traffic came the more opportunity to expand. A new structure was built to accompany the Minnewauken House, a structure designed by Louis Claude, fellow resident there. It was a Swiss chalet-style place called the Cliff House, and it incorporated the Minnewauken House as like a wing of the new structure. So it was pretty much an expansion of the Minnewauken House, and they called the whole property the Cliff House. Hmm. So the Cliff House featured a large dining room, 40 by 80, with the spacious view of the lake. In the dining room, the guests wore proper attire, suits for men, Dinner dresses for women, elegant would be an apt description. So, yeah, like I said, they got fancy there. So, within the resort area, there was a telegraph, a post office, a grocery store, a barbershop, a billiards room, and even a bowling alley.
0: What? I want to go there. Can yeah, we go back to the I know, this,
1: this would have been great. And it even gets better, Mike. This wasn't a rustic retreat or Motel Six, this was luxury accommodations. So in 1879, Hartley sold the house to a name that Madisonians might recognize, William F. Vilas.
0: Ah, uh, yes, one of the big wigs in early Madison. Yep. And
1: he, at the time, he was sitting U.S. Senator. So he was a big deal, and he ended up buying the Cliff House. And 1884, the annex was completed, which was an expansion of the property, a separate structure. It had 30 more rooms atop of the 63 at the Cliff House. The two buildings combined could house up to 400 people. All right. So it was high times at Devil's Lake. Now, alternate accommodations were available if you were the poorest. You know, family cottages, log cabins, or even tent camping like there is today.
0: Right, that's the poorest, like me. (laughs) Uh, That's where I'd be staying. Go tent camping at Devil's Lake.
1: Be tent camping at Devil's Lake. Now, in the summer months, guests were treated to dances, live music, orchestras, piano concertos, and live theater. Now, after almost every evening some guests would walk to a place called Shadow Town. There they would listen to cylinder records on an Edison phonograph where they drink soda and eat Cracker Jack. It was one of the first phonographs in the area. Oh, that's cool. So, So, yeah.
0: The Shadow Town was like the nightclub with the DJ or whatever. Exactly, yep. And also, you get your Cracker Jack.
1: So, when is Sunspot going to start pressing onto wax cylinders?
0: Hey, it's cool with the hipsters. Cool now. With the hipsters. Them, they listen to it on the original Edison record players. And, you know, they're doing that while they're stretching their denim and stuff like that in their <laughs> 1870s jeans.
1: That's right. So that was kind of the, the night scene. There was live music, places for the cool kids to hang out. The hipsters could spin their, their phonographs and probably was cool because recorded audio, we take it for granted today. You're listening to it now. Right. But that was a novelty back in the day on these wax cylinders.
0: Yeah, just it's a, it's a miracle.
1: Yeah, for sure. So the Cliff House was operated under Vilas until 1903 when it closed. It seems that the upkeep and the operating expenses exceeded the revenue that came through. This coupled with the railroad company's decision to reduce the number of fares to Devil's Lake and also the railroad company's refusal to give discounted rates on round-trip tickets to Chicago.
0: Ah.
1: So people kind of said, well, we'll look other ways to spend our vacation bucks. So, in 1903, the building and all of its accoutrement was sold with hopes of reopening, but it never did, and was demolished shortly thereafter. That's a bummer. Yeah, so, talked about the Minnehawken House, the Cliff House. There's several other resort and private residents around the lake, including Kirkland, Palisade Park, Messenger Shore, Devi Barra, and the Canfield Estate. So, it was a well-inhabited place, kind of a resort town vibe, kind of what you see to the north in the Wisconsin Dells, but with a lot more class and...
0: Yeah, it's like a high-end type of resort area, you know, to go. that it sounds, it sounds nice.
1: Yeah, sounds lovely. So one legend asserts that the Ringlings had a camp on Devil's Lake and even enlisted their circus elephants to clear and build roads. Other tales tell of elephants splashing, swimming in the lake. Well, none of that's been documented, But it's likely that circus roustabouts, unskilled laborers, circus wagons, um, including pulling teams, were involved in the construction of the South Shore Road. Um,
0: And that's because the Ringling Brothers used to winter in Baraboo, right? That was kind of their home base, yeah.
1: And just north there is the Circus World Museum because of the Ringling Brothers. So the proprietor of the camp was Henry Ringling. He was the nephew to the Ringling Brothers, the original six brothers that started
0: um, there were six brothers that started it. I believe
1: crap. so. I'll have to check the, the facts on I that, thought that one.
0: I thought that was just like two guys. No, no it was a whole stu- was It stu- was a, stu- a whole of gaggle the of
1: brothers. And Gag- the, the two young men that took over the circus operations were actually the sons of the sister. Oh, okay. Yep. So Henry Ringling, he was a second in command and of the legacy of the Ringling brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus at that point. They were circus magnates. So no real proof that... Elephants were there, you know, plowing roads or pulling plows or whatever, but there definitely was a wrangling camp and cabin on the shores and has been since demolished, unfortunately. So now we can't mention Devil's Lake without talking two aspects. We talked about the state park, but we also have to talk about the CCC. Do you know what the CCC is?
0: Was that the Civilian Conservation Corps?
1: That's right. It was a Depression-era Works Progress Administration program. It was a social program of federal works projects that there was over 2,600 of these CCC camps around America, including the one at Devil's Lake.
0: And that was because in the Great Depression, that was part of Roosevelt's New Deal, right? Is that he would try to help people find jobs and the government would make jobs because yeah, the there Depression was, was so bad.
1: Yeah, apparently the private industry jobs had dried up and they thought that the best thing was to at least make people useful give them a trade so they took these 18 to 25 year old men a section of the society that was hardest hit because anybody older than that probably had experience in the workforce so they tamped down their jobs but these kids coming up they you know other than laying railroad track or whatever didn't have a skill so they put them to work at these ccc camps so the ccc was responsible for many of the improvements to the walking paths hiking trails they built structures, cleared deadwood, served as fire guards. They earned a meager wage, but they also received room and board, along with kind of a rudimentary education.
0: Sure, and something to do.
1: It, it gave right. them a purpose, something to do. So it operated under the CCC until 1941. The federal government eventually turned over that camp area back to the government. You can actually go to Devil's Lake. There's a, a parking lot there with a sculpture, like a bronze sculpture of a CCC worker, along with a, a, a plaque there. Okay. Kind of commemorating it. And if you've ever done the uh, East Bluff trails, mm-hmm. um, up to the top, you'll see a lot of stones were laid. That was part of the CCC too. So, so,
0: okay. So we can thank the Roosevelt and the Civilian Conservation Corps for the, you know, the beauty of Devil's Lake that we yeah, get to enjoy a almost 100 years later.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So we talked about kind of the early history, the state park came in about, I think it was 1911 and the CCC with its improvements, but we got to talk about the geology because it's one of the most interesting geological places in Wisconsin. Okay. So quote from H.E. Cole reads, geologically, Devil's Lake is one of the wonders of the world. The Baraboo Bluffs are among the oldest formed things on the globe, older than the Rockies or the Alleghenies. So it's a very interesting geologically. Now, it's nestled amongst the bluffs of the Baraboo Range. The range was formed approximately 1.6 million years ago, which makes them one of the most ancient rock outcroppings in all of North America. Wow. So the formations found in Devil's Lake are made of quartzite rock, which is a tightly compressed sand. The sand is believed to have been deposited by rivers that uh, drain there, As the sand accumulated, it formed sandstone. And then quartzite is a metamorphic rock composed entirely of quartz, or almost entirely of quartz. It forms when quartz-rich sandstone is altered by heat and pressure and chemical activity of metamorphosism. Now, metamorphosism recrystallizes the sand grains and the silica within that deposit kind of binds it together like a glue. So it's like a sandstone that's like tightly compressed and and turned in. Hmm. And the main ingredient being quartz. And what do we know about quartz and the paranormal?
0: Well, some people say that uh, quartz is a conduit uh, for this kind of activity.
1: Yeah, so, and if you've hiked Devil's Lake, you'll notice just the abundance of this quartzite rock. So about 15,000 years ago, A sheet of ice known as the Wisconsin Glacier churned through. The Great Ice Sheet sheared its way through the eastern half of the Baraboo Hills. Now, if you're driving up, I believe it's Highway 12 Mm -hmm. towards, from like Sauk City to Baraboo, you'll notice that if you look to the south and the west, you will see still the kind of craggy bluffs and rocks, where if you look north and east, it's all kind of glaciated, Flat with rolling hills like the rest of Wisconsin, ah. so it's kind of the start of the driftless region. And if you've been on the Lower Dells boat tour, you'll uh, be in for a treat with all of the rock formations down sure. there. It's like I said, one of the most interesting geological features in Wisconsin.
0: Well, and, and because it's where the glacier broke,
1: it is. Yep, it's yeah. a, they call it the terminus of the glacier. So after the Wisconsin Glacier made its way through the gorge, it created what we know as Devil's Lake. The areas continued to flood with incoming rivers. Now, there have been many ancient legends of sea monsters in Devil's Lake. Could those rivers that were routed into Devil's Lake carried with them ancient sea creatures
0: that
1: still live there today? Well, our native ancestors believe so. They have a legend that they call... The Legend of Devil's Lake. Now, The Legend of Devil's Lake is a tale of a great battle between the large birds from the north opposing the water spirits of the depths. Mm. And many Indian cultures regard thunderbirds as the wardens of the sky or the high plane of existence. Now, they look at the thunderbirds as protectors or even punishers of those of low moral integrity the oft mischievous sea serpents. Yes. So to seek vengeance on these nasty creatures, the Thunderbirds flew high above the lake and rained hell upon the sea monsters. The raptors fired thunderbolts and large stones into the water and the surrounding landscape. Mm. But the battle wasn't one-sided. The sea serpents and Tempest returned fire from the depths, launching rocks and boulders back into the air and onto the bluffs of the surrounding Devil's Lake sometimes even ensnaring the birds with their tentacles and dragging them to the depths.
0: Ah, so if, as they're throwing the rocks and stuff like that, is that the idea that that's why some of the rocks got on top of the bluffs?
1: Yeah. So after several days, the Thunderbirds reigned victorious, returned to their nests in the north, but others claim that the sea serpents won the battle and the Thunderbirds retreated. Now, we have a lot of Thunderbird mythology to the south in Illinois. So maybe they didn't go north, maybe they went south. Now, for the winner. Yep, as Good you said, idea. the damage from the timeless battle is evident today. From vantage point on top of the bluffs, you can see the lake shores are strewn with large boulders and rock pieces. The bluffs surrounding the lake are split and sheared. Trees that once perched high upon the bluffs are now uprooted and tossed carelessly into the abyss below. So perhaps a commemoration of the Thunderbird can be seen today at the park. It may have been depicted at the bird mount which is in the South Shore parking lot adjacent to the restroom, you can see this huge Thunderbird effigy. And they call it the Bird Mound. It's worth going and checking out. And if you believe the standard model, it was made by hunter-gatherers with deer scapulas and wicker baskets. It's an amazing earthwork, and if that's true, it was quite an accomplishment.
0: Yeah, I mean, those effigy mounds are huge, and they're incredible. And and they can only be, like... You only really know what it is if you're looking from above.
1: And and you read a lot of the antiquity books written at the early and It's like, how did they survey these things and how did they get an impression of them? And it was just a matter of doing math and triangulation to get the full picture. So there's still some mysteries within the mountains. Oh, absolutely. Yep. So another legend from Devil's Lake is, as the full moon rose, a local chief assembled a party of young warriors their plan to embark on a midnight hunt of the many nocturnal game animals that roamed at the edge of the lake. As a small party of young hunters paddled across the lake's calm water, a creature began to emerge. The creature's tentacles ripped through the lake's placid surface and ensnared a canoe. The octopus-like creature pulled the canoe to its depths and its occupants to their death. The members of the tribe watched in horror from the safety of a nearby shore. Not a soul from the canoe survived their fate, or their watery grave. So to pay homage and likely as a treaty with a water demon, the tribe placed gifts of tobacco along the lake shore. Now we heard about De La Ron saying they saw the tobacco on the shore mm-hmm. as an offering to the Manitou, but maybe it was a bribe to the sea serpents below for safe passage.
0: Well, and, and the fact that um, they describe it as like a squid-like or octopus Yeah, creature. almost
1: like, yeah. So, it's said that the tradition continues to this day with a picnic uh, to honor and celebrate the legend of the great warriors. That's time came too soon. And today, eyewitnesses claim that on a full moon night, a ghostly apparition of an Indian can be seen traveling across the water, perhaps this time with a safer journey to the happy hunting grounds. Mm -hmm. So, that's one of the ghost sightings that are associated with that. And it's kind of tied into. A sea serpent. So we get kind of the two worlds colliding. Right,
0: two for one. You, yep. get, you get a cryptid as well as a ghost.
1: Now, there's another legend, this coming from the Nakota, about the waters receding in Devil's Lake and a small strip of mud or land emerged. And the tribe woke up one morning to the sight of a large sea creature now beached on the new land bridge. They watched as the animal described as having a large body with a long neck and head like a horse as it tried to free itself from its perch. Hmm. Even the bravest of the warriors paused in its pursuit of the creature. So they didn't want anything to do with this thing. Right. Now, eventually the animal was able to make its way back into the water where they say it remains to this day. Now, Mike, I know you've done some research on, you know, these sea serpents and sea monster sightings, Dating back pretty much in oral tradition from the beginning of humanity at that location at Devil's Lake. Right. But more recently, what have you found?
0: Well, Jeff, what do you know about H.P. Lovecraft?
1: Mike, are you referring to the deep ones?
0: Well, I just might be. All right, to set everybody up a little bit, H.P. Lovecraft is an author from the early 20th century. He wrote a lot of, like, you know, literally pulp fiction. For the Weird Tales magazines, very influential. He's the creator of Cthulhu, which is you guys might have seen the big squid-like looking monster and things. And um, his work has been adapted into the movies like Reanimator from Beyond
1: Lovecraft Country recently.
0: Yes, was inspired by his work mm-hmm. and a couple of different things, but his connection to Wisconsin. Now he lived most of his life. In On the East Coast.
1: Massachusetts.
0: and and, Right, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. But he was a very prodigious letter writer. And so people who, who would read his fiction would then send him letters and he'd respond to them. Now, one of those people who grew up reading his fiction and then sending him letters was a guy named August Derleth.
1: Wisconsin's own was Sock City.
0: right. yeah, so Sock City, August Derleth, he would write Lovecraft back and forth, send him like examples of his fiction, and Lovecraft would critique it. And eventually August Durleth started submitting to these pulp fiction magazines as well. That's kind of the the first connection is is August Derleth. the The second connection as we talked about the movie Reanimator, Stuart Gordon who was the director of Reanimator, which was kind of the first, not big budget, but the first kind of theatrical film, which was directly taken from a Lovecraft work, Stuart Gordon went to the University of Wisconsin. And that's kind of where he developed his style that would eventually become the Organic Theater in Chicago. And in the Organic Theater in Chicago is where uh, they would start adapting these Lovecraft tales for the stage. And eventually he was offered to make a film of Lovecraft's work, Herbert West Reanimator, and then he adapted that, made Reanimator, which became a classic, then ended up doing From Beyond based on Lovecraft. The film Dagon is based on Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is where we get the reference to the Deep Ones. Now, I've read this in several different places about Devil's Lake. They're like, well, this one guy did these ceremonies back in the 70s to. Um, evoke the deep ones, you know, at Devil's Lake. Magical rituals. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And that kind of, they just kind of gloss over that in, in a bunch of these places. And it's like, I'd like to learn more why people were doing magical rituals based on H.P. Lovecraft stories and why in Wisconsin.
1: And August Derleth, so he is the reason we know H.P. Lovecraft's name. He's the one that originally organized a lot of Lovecraft's short stories into volumes after Lovecraft's death.
0: Right. So and, they wouldn't be like lost like a lot of those old Pulp Fiction stories. Yeah. When he found out that he died, he decided to like republish them and form this thing called Arkham House right in Sauk City. Mm-hmm. And so Arkham House Publishing is is where – all of these Lovecraft works were, you know, done. And then they started writing more into it. August Durleth would complete a couple of Lovecraft stories. And then uh, he started printing other authors. And they're writing in that milieu in the Lovecraft universe. They call it the Cthulhu, Cthulhu Mythos. Cthulhu Mythos,
1: yep. And uh, just for reference, Sauk City is only about 20, 25 miles from Devil's Lake. So it's a neighboring town.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's the same county. Yeah, you know, <laughs> in Sauk County. Yeah. And, and so, all right. So why did people associate, you know, beyond August Derleth's association with the area, why would people associate the Devil's Lake area with, with that? Well, Kenneth Grant is an occultist in the 1960s who kind of takes over for the big famous English occultist, Alastair Crowley. So after Crowley dies, uh, the people in the magical, with a K, community... They were, you know, they were going off his inspiration for new kinds of ceremonies and, and things like that. We're going, to, we're going to get into more of that in a second. And uh, Kenneth Grant was one of the leaders in kind of picking up the mantle after uh, Crowley died. He writes a book in the 70s called Cults of the Shadow, and he mentions Durleth by name in this quote, according to August Durleth, who continued the literary tradition of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, certain parts of Wisconsin contain specific Cthulhu power zones, the most potent of which lies about a deserted lake. Okay, a power zone. What's that? Grant uses that in his work basically to discuss things that are chakras. So if we have the idea of, from Hindu, Kind of Hindu mysticism, the chakra, and you see this in yoga. Seven of
1: them on your body, right?
0: The head, the heart, different parts. There's
1: thirteen. I can't remember. The
0: seven. I think you're correct. So just like your body has chakras, these power zones, so does the earth.
1: Okay, we talk about ley lines, sacred places being laid on them, and does that kind of fit with their idea of chakra?
0: And that kind of fits what um with Kenneth Grant when he's talking about the Cthulhu power zones. He's talking about these earth chakras. He goes on and, you know, in the book, this is just like a, um, a little section about it, but it, get, it keeps on getting repeated. And so I wanted to go in deeper, like what were they doing in, you know, the Devil's Lake area? And so Kenneth Grant continues, a small group of initiates directed by Michael Bertot, who was a uh, Chicago occultist, frequently visit this region with the intention of evoking the deep ones whose point of entry to the earth plane lies within the lake itself. The rites are performed when the sun is in one of the water signs of the zodiac, Cancer, Scorpio, or Pisces. This attunes the magicians with the nature of the being evoked, Cancer and Scorpio being the best times for this type of working, and if Jupiter, Luna, and Pluto, Luna the moon, Pluto the former planet, are also in these signs, the results are usually spectacularly successful, he says, for the creatures then assume an almost... Tangible substance. Okay. We're talking about fictional creatures, right? We're talking about something that's part of a belief system. So what was you know Berto thinking? And what are the deep ones that you know originally they talk about in Shadow Over Innsmouth, which became the inspiration for the movie Dagon, directed by University of Wisconsin's own <laughs> steward? <laughs> All Gordon. ties together. This is from the HP Lovecraft Wiki. The Deep Ones are an ocean-dwelling race, as evidenced by their name, with an affinity for mating with humans. Humanoid fish-frog entities, their scaled, sometimes rugose, skin is a grayish-green to blue, shiny and slippery with fine-like ridges on their backs and webbed feet and hands. Their heads vary in disposition, appearing fish- or frog-like, with prodigious, bulging eyes and wide, thin-lipped mouths possessing shark-like teeth. On their necks may be present palpitating gills. They entered a contract with the people of Innsmouth to keep the fish plentiful in their area. They also seem to have a supply of gold artifacts of unearthly design. The Deep Ones worship Father Dagon and his consort Mother Hydra. The Deep Ones are an amphibious race that primarily serve the two beings known as Father Dagon and Mother Hydra, but they also have strong ties to Cthulhu, that the big elder god that sleeps in the ocean that Lovecraft made up, that he's waiting to wake up and then take over the planet. Locked in the timeless depths of the sea, their alien and arrogant lives are coldly beautiful, unbelievably cruel, and effectively immortal. They are a marine race and globally have many cities all submerged beneath the waves. One is off the coast of Massachusetts, blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, so that's the idea. The deep ones are like a fish, frog, humanoid combo. And this is what Berteau said was trying to evoke. Now, why would they be interested in a fictional character? Why would they, why would you do that? This is from a journal article from the Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies. Um, the Influence of H.P. Lovecraft and Occultism by a guy named Cara Bolton. The adoption and adaptation of a theme from Lovecraft's horror stories, that of the Cthulhu mythos, is no less plausible than any other occult system or doctrine of magic. Magic is based on the irrational, on the intuitive, the unseen, literally that which is occult or hidden, being summoned forth for individual or communal purposes by circumventing the causal relationships of the material universe. One form of magic that has become widespread over the last few decades is chaos magic, which is also heavily influenced by British ceremonial magician, Alistair Crowley, with an added influence being uh, an English occultist of the same area, the artist Austin Osmond Spare, who was a contemporary with Kenneth Grant. And uh, Spare disposed of complex rituals and based his work on meditations, path working, but when people do magical things, they call it a working Mm -hmm. is part of the ritual. Since any symbol can be used that has sufficient impact on the imagination or the unconscious of the meditator, it can be readily seen how the Cthulhu mythos has sufficient influence upon the psyche to be of use as a complete occult system despite its origins in 20th century short stories. The words, imagery, and symbols portrayed by Lovecraft are sufficiently arcane to excite the imagination and that's what Kenneth Grant believed, and that's what he, he wrote in his, he's got Man, Myth, and Magic in 1971, he thinks Lovecraft stories are based on something real. Until quite recently, people read Lovecraft stories and shuddered, if sufficiently honest and sensitive enough to admit their uncanny impact, not suspecting for a moment that such things could be. Few know that Lovecraft dreamed most of his tales, and he sometimes thought that these dreams, or rather, nightmares, were caused by misdeeds in remotely distant incarnations when perhaps he had aimed at acquiring magical powers. These dreams were memories of the past and prophecies of the future, for he said that, quote, Nightmares are the punishment meted out to the soul for sins committed in previous incarnations, perhaps millions of years ago, unquote. Although Lovecraft seems to have been unacquainted with Crowley's work, It is evident that they were both in touch with a source of power, quote, a praetor human intelligence, capable of inspiring very real apprehension in the minds of those who were either through past affiliation or present inclination on the same wavelength. Anyone familiar with Lovecraft's letters? many hundreds of which have been published by August Durleth of Sauk City, Wisconsin. That's Kenneth Grant talking about August Durleth and Sauk City. By and next, that was like, again, will appreciate these statements, for they show him to have been an extraordinarily ascetic and self-effacing kind of writer. The absolute antithesis of Crowley, whose personal extravagances were well known. But it is evident that both Crowley and Lovecraft were registering communications from an unknown source.
1: So his conjecture was that they were tapping into this from some ethereal realm and that it actually existed on a plane of reality outside of our own. And they were trying to break it through, think stranger things upside down. Yeah. Kind of creating a portal. And we talked about the early rumor that I heard about it being a portal to hell, Devil's (laughs) Lake, and literally maybe trying to create a portal at Devil's Lake to call these deep ones, or I guess creatures from another realm. That's through. E-
0: that's exactly right. So Kenneth Grant is saying that Crowley and Lovecraft were on the same wavelength of receiving some kind of information from another plane. In Crowley's world, it was this demon Iwas or whatever that he evoked, and then uh, Iwas read. And to we him we the hear Book about the this Law.
1: the legend of him doing this on Loch Ness. Correct, and he had his,
0: the Bolskine house.
1: Yep, yeah, (laughs) Bolskine,
0: right, but he's got a house on, so he's doing this, Crowley is doing this on Loch Ness. And so Michael Berteau, who's a Chicago occultist, he's doing this by Devil's Lake. Now, in order to understand like the ritual they were doing, and this is the 70s, remember, when this is happening. So it's a different time, sexual revolution and the whole thing. We want to discuss a little bit kind of what chaos magic is, the two things that involved in the rituals. And this is from Lieber Null by Peter J. Carroll, who's kind of the guru of chaos magic and kind of developed it in the 70s. The first is a thing called gnosis, and here's how he explains it. Altered states of consciousness are the key to magical powers. The particular state of mind required has a name in every tradition. No mind, stopping the internal dialogue, passing through the eye of the needle, Uh, samadhi, or one-pointedness. In this book, it will be known as gnosis. It is an extension of the magical trance by other means. Methods of achieving gnosis can be divided into two types. The inhibitory mode, where the mind is progressively silenced until only a single object of concentration remains, like meditation or something.
1: Yeah, it sounds a lot like transcendental.
0: Mm -hmm. Or the excitatory mode, the mind is raised to a very high pitch of excitement while concentration on the objective is maintained. Strong stimulation eventually elicits a reflex inhibition and paralyzes all but the most central function, the object of concentration. Thus, strong inhibition and strong excitation, like
1: sex magic,
0: (laughs) right, end up creating the same effect: the one pointed consciousness or gnosis. That's the first part of the magic is the, is having the single point of concentration. The idea, the ritual, like you, there's one thing you focus on, and, and that's.
1: focus, meditate, and then add energy to it.
0: And the other thing is what is evocation. Like so, he's trying to evoke the deep ones. Uh, this is back in Libre Null. Evocation is the art of dealing with magical beings or entities by various acts which create or contact them and allow one to conjure and command them with pacts and exorcism. These beings have a legion of names drawn from the demonology of many cultures. Elementals, familiars, incubi, succubi, budwills, demons, automata, atavisms, wraiths, spirits, and so on.
1: So all these nasty things from the other realm. Right. The upside down.
0: The upside down, exactly. Entities may be bound to talismans, places, animals, objects, persons, incense, smoker, or be mobile in the ether. It is not the case that such entities are limited to obsessions and complexes in the human mind. Although such beings customarily have their origin in the mind, they may be butted off and attached to objects and places in the forms of ghosts, spirits, or vibrations, or may exert action at a distance in the form of fetishes, familiars, or poltergeists. These beings consist of a portion of life force attached to some etheric matter, the whole of which may or may not be attached to ordinary matter like a person. But evocation may be further defined as the summoning or creation of such partial beings to accomplish some purpose. They may be used to cause change in oneself, change in others, or change in the universe. During moments of this evocation by certain energies, the magician may be the recipient of inspirations, abilities, and knowledge not normally accessible to him. Entities may be drawn from these three sources, those which are discovered clairvoyantly, those whose characteristics are given in grimoires of spirits and demons, like, you know, there's that whole lesser key of Solomon or whatever, which supposedly has these biblical demons and stuff, or those which the magician may wish to create himself.
1: It's almost like tulpas or thought forms are projections exactly. of the unconscious mind onto this plane of reality.
0: Right, and that and the, the whole thing in Chaos Magic is evoking these, or you know, that y- you can create Tulpa's servitors or things like that. And this is what they're trying to do at Devil's Lake. This is they're evoking the deep ones. So you have the idea that Lovecraft was writing about was real, was, you know, because he dreamed it. You have the idea that people want to evoke these beings from another plane of existence to get some power or something like that for themselves.
1: And some say that, Crowley, with these magical spells or rituals at Boleskin on Loch Ness, literally conjured a form like the deep one in the form of the Loch Ness Monster.
0: Right. And so now we're talking about that they're doing it at Devil's, at
1: Devil's Lake. Lake. And two other lakes in Sauk County.
0: So this is what Michael Berteau in his work, Monastery for the Seven Rays, the, the second year, this is called Year Two. Sexual magic is what they do in Year Two at the Monastery of the Seven nice. Rays. Nice. And here's what Berteau says. The ultimate mystical and magical condition of humanity is one of physical union, whereby consciousness of having different physical bodies is lost and where each feels the identity that is the one body of mankind achieved by nudism. Immediate physical contact and emphasized by the use of body oil and possibly psychedelic or alcoholic stimulation, the bodies are one body and there's little possibility of anybody feeling apart from it. The focus of attention shifts rapidly to the shared emotions of the group and all feelings have been put into a commonly shared emotional experience. Now everything is one and this one body, soul, and spirit functions in a state of perfect communion. So here's their ritual when they're at the lake. This is, and this is now from Kennedy. sounds
1: like just a clever ploy to lay gullible women.
0: <laughs> it, it totally does. I'm, and this is the 1970s, remember? I mean, Michael Berto, I know people that have met him and they say he's a really nice guy and stuff like that, but this does sound like weird sex games in the 1970s.
1: A famous era in American history, which was pre AIDS mid Coke.
0: <laughs> right, right. And then, and also after the birth control pill.
1: And there you go. Right, yeah. so, um, so it was like the high time for the sexual revolution.
0: And so when they're talking about doing these rituals to evoke the demons from Kenneth Grant's cults of the shadow, here's how he describes the ritual they perform. Before the working begins, certain elemental calls are chanted and magical images are consecrated with the special callas of the sea priestesses. The most potent of these calls is a Creole French spell composed especially for use in the cultists of the deep ones. No musical instruments accompany the chant, which in itself is potent to build up the required forces. The cult of the Deep Ones flourishes in an atmosphere of moisture and coldness, the exact opposite of the fire and heat generated by the initial ceremonies, which include the lycanthropic rites, werewolf rites, Mm -hmm. that evoke the inhabitants of the lake. The participants at this stage actually immerse themselves in the ice-cold water, where a transfer of sex-magical energy occurs between priests and priestesses while in that element. The device is common to gypsy witchcraft, where it combines with voodoo practices in which cold water is used to bring out female positivity or magnetism. The positive manifestation of female effluvia, bodily fluids, Okay, serves to evoke the positive manifestations in the male. Basically, they're having sex in the lake to evoke the deep ones. And so, yeah, they were having these, and certain nights, they were having sex in the cold water, trying to evoke Lovecraftian monsters to serve some kind of end for them.
1: Were they successful, other than getting laid?
0: Well, I you know I have no idea. Devil's Lake's a nice place. I've been to weddings there. So obviously it's a place of romance and stuff like that. But um, this idea that they're going to evoke these creatures dreamed into existence and that they would perform some service for them or do some change for themselves. The idea of the magical ritual really is everything means something. That's why they do it like it's got to be with a, a water sign like Scorpio or Cancer or whatever. They do it in the water. Everything they do is meant to have some kind of meaning. And then the gnosis is the point of orgasm or whatever during sex, but that's all you can concentrate on. And the evocation is when something comes from that. So basically, that's what they were doing when they talk about uh, the Cthulhu power zone all right, uh, in Devil's Lake in the 70s. And I just kind of wanted to get to the bottom of that.
1: That's, that's interesting because it, um, the first time I saw it written was actually on our mutual friend T. Crulos's blog. And just like you had discovered in passing that it was just kind of mentioned and then nothing deeper. Right. Yeah, and I think it was in Jim Brandon's Weird America. It was mentioned again. Mm-hmm. But no deeper. So thanks for getting to the bottom of that one and sleuthing that one out. Yeah.
0: And so you, I mean, and you can find that in, uh, in my, if you want to do it yourself, you can read Kenneth Grant's book on the cult of the shadow, where he talks about it. And then Michael Berto wrote this Gnostic Voudan workbook, which is like 600 pages. Yeah. It's got a really cool
1: cover on it and just be kind of a cool piece to put on the shelf. So
0: I read all the parts that I could handle uh, so you guys didn't have to. All so right, we, pre- we guide, appreciate your hard work, <laughs> guide Mike. you to do
1: it. So we talked about, you know, sea monsters, ancient tales, more recent tales of the deep ones. So you might think that um, you're safe on dry land at Devil's Lake. Well, in the 1970s, there was a flap of hairy hominid sightings. It was reported by campers in the park. So that begs the question, does Bigfoot inhabit the Devil's Lake area too. Oh. And then there's another account from a book called Oddball Wisconsin. This was kind of the precursor to like Weird Wisconsin and a lot of the Chad Lewis stuff. And it shares a tale of a punctual UFO. Now, a strange ball of light appeared nightly between 8 and 8.30 p.m. It was said to arise from the Baraboo Bluffs and fly off to the southeast just off of State Highway 113. Hmm. So... We have we have sea serpents. We have ghost Indians. There is a tale about a ghost elephant, which might tie into kind of the Ringling Brothers. And then there's a famous Fate magazine article about a ghost elephant, Baraboo. Yes. to look up. So it kind of makes you question, is Devil's Lake a window area, as John Keel would put it? Is it this perfect place where all of the quartzite, all this energy, the Cthulhu power zones... A line to create these anomalies, like light balls and ghost sightings and, and big sea creatures and bigfoot. It's just uh, kind of an interesting thing to scratch your head on. Yeah, so if it's not for the supernatural, there have been recent sightings of rattlesnakes found bathing atop of the rock outcroppings. Now that's terrifying. Yes, recent mountain line sightings. any of these reports would give any hiker pause? But I'll pause there and let you tell me about some of the tragedies that have occurred in the history and recent history of Devil's Lake.: Yes,
0: yeah, so, I mean I mean, it's a beautiful place. Almost everybody from Wisconsin ends, you know, ends up going there at some point.:
1: Yeah, I don't know anybody who has lived in Wisconsin that hasn't been
0: there. Like visited Devil's Lake, you know, it, it's just, if you're going to go to a state park, that's the best. It's the
1: one to check off, <laughs> the top of the list to check off.
0: Exactly, exactly. And and that it's been that way though, people coming to visit. I mean, we were talking about the hotel era, but then it becomes a state park in 1911 and people are still coming up to visit. This is from uh, Tragedy at Devil's Lake, Saw County and Baraboo by Robert C. Duell, DDS who was a dentist I
1: was just say oh, it's a dentist
0: Yes who was a dentist who kept track of Baraboo and Devil's Lake history An empty rowboat had floated to the north shore and it contained personal property of both a man and a woman
1: That must have been the Indian canoe right
0: <laughs> Right or or something
1: um, more tragic
0: Investigation revealed that it had been rented by a young Chicago couple vacationing here on their honeymoon They had rented a cottage at the lake earlier in the week following their marriage on August 2nd, and later had moved to the Rialto Hotel in Baraboo. Now they were missing. The boat, however, held interesting materials. A man's shirt was found along with a lady's purse, containing $15, and a lady's coat. Most interesting, however, was an expensive camera, perhaps a wedding gift, the kind with a folding bellows. When developed, the celluloid film revealed photos of each of them in the boat as taken by the other. The newlyweds were Mr. and Mrs. Jim Petrillo of Chicago, and that afternoon, the Baraboo News Republic posted an extra piece on the front page describing the puzzling situation. Puzzling, yet it seemed obvious that people must have drowned the lake. Sheriff E.C. Mueller and District Attorney F.B. Moss began a search. A dragging operation began along the East Bluff. An airplane, piloted by Eticola of Prairie de Sac, was even summoned to see if bodies could be found spotted from the air, but without success. Upon arrival, young Petrillo's mother stated that neither her son nor the new daughter-in-law could swim. The dragging continued, though it was difficult due to wire and other debris under the surface. Even a week after the discovery of the boat, the operation continued without success, but a break came on the eighth day when the body of Mrs. Petrillo came to the surface clad in a blue dress and with a wristwatch still on her wrist, which stopped at 1.50 p.m. Jim Petrillo's body surfaced the following day. Though both bodies showed considerable facial lacerations, it is believed that contact with the sharp rocks was the cause. Nevertheless, an inquest was held, and the sheriff reported that there were no fractures or any other indication of violence. Also, rumors to the contrary, young Mrs. Petrillo was not expecting to become a mother. So that was part of the legend about it. Was then, so? But a young couple drowned there mysteriously in 1929. In um, 2014, on June 1st, 2014, at approximately 4 a.m., the Salt County Communications Center was notified that a tree had fallen on a tent on the Ice Age campground at Dallas Lake State Park. The park rangers, Sauk County Sheriff's deputies and Baraboo Fire Department and Baraboo Ambulance immediately sent to the scene. Responders arrived to find a father and his 11-year-old daughter trapped underneath the tree that had fallen under their tent during the storm. A 14-year-old boy was able to climb out after the accident. Baraboo Fire Department personnel were able to free the subjects from entrapment. The father and the 14-year-old were transported to St. Clair Hospital, but the 11-year-old girl was pronounced dead at the scene by salt County coroner. And so, you know, sad things, you know, have happened there. Uh, the first is more mysterious. The second is just more, you know... Tragic. Bad luck. And, it you know, it seems that every couple of years someone tries to climb the rocks up the bluffs and they don't make it. So it just, you know and I've known since I've lived in Madison, you know, two and a half decades or whatever that we've had at least, you know, four or five different people who, you know, died death by misadventure. You know, they thought they could climb because there's all these loose rocks. We talk about the battle between the Thunderbird and the sea serpent of the water Panther and the the sea serpents of the water Panther. They're flinging rocks. Yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the, one of the, cliff areas has just, you know, like loose rocks up, you know, and and you can climb them.
1: Yeah. And I was just there a couple of weeks ago with my family and we're just walking along the trails there. And it was on the south side on the East Bluff Trail. You can just see the debris field that came off of there. So one, you know, false hook in there, one of those boulders could come loose and tumble like they eventually all will. So yeah, it is, it is a treacherous place. It's a place of beauty and wonder, but something tragic happened there just uh, about a year and a half ago.
0: That's right. This is from Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, uh, May 5th, 2021. Devil's Lake Homicide, possible Baraboo murder suspect still at large. On October 14th, the South County Communications Center received a report of a disturbance a possible attempted at homicide on the Grotto's Trail on the south side of Devil's Lake State Park. First responders found John Craig Schmutzer, 24, deceased on the trail. Hundreds of tips have been investigated. Even more interviews have been conducted, search warrants have been executed, and physical evidence has been examined, South County Sheriff Chipmeister said in a news release Wednesday. While the public has been, quote, forthcoming with information, unquote, that has led to the identification of people who investigators need to speak and avenues to investigate— Meister said they're still in search of any suspect in the case. That was six months after the murder. And this is from October 2021. This is WauwatosaWisconsinPatch.com. No arrests one year after fatal Devil's Lake stabbing of a Wauwatosa man. John Schmutzer was found stabbed to death at Devil's Lake State Park outside of Baraboo on October 14th, 2020. One year later, there have been no arrests, but authorities remain determined to solve the case. Sheriff Chip Meister again says, unfortunately, we haven't accomplished that mission, but we will not give up. Schmutzer died a brutal death when he was simply trying to enjoy the beauty that the state parks offer, Meister said. I would love nothing more than to be standing here announcing an arrest. Unfortunately, I can't. A man was observed at the time running near the crime scene, police said. And um, Christopher Zunker, who's the lead investigator out of the South County Sheriff's Department, said, we do have an unidentified person of interest who we have referred to as the runner who was seen by more than 15 separate witnesses in various parts of Devil's Lake State Park. Witnesses described a six-foot man with slender to average build, wearing ripped pants and a dark top, possibly a hoodie. The man was running frantically and out of control north from the parking lot of the group camp near South Lake Road, presumably onto or near Grotto's Trail, where the murder victim ended up. The timing and location of these sightings lead investigators to believe that this person may be the person responsible for John Schmutzer's death. So over the past year, authorities reported the following about the investigation. They've received and investigated 150 tips. They have conducted hundreds of interviews with people across the United States. They've collected more than 30 items of evidence. They've analyzed eight DNA samples from possible persons of interest. They have obtained and served 30 search warrants, subpoenas, and other court orders. Zunker continues, I have said from the beginning of this investigation that cases such as these are solved by a person or persons having the courage to face the fact that they know or may have knowledge about who's responsible for this death and then bringing this information forward to get justice for John and to potentially save the life of another victim down the road. Zunker said it won't be shelved as a cold case, even though we're a year and a half into it. The case file will remain with a detective and will remain an active investigation, exploring every new tip, new lead piece of evidence, or hunch, he said. And that's it.
1: That's crazy. There, yeah.
0: Nobody's, I mean, a murder happened in daylight at a state park on with, a
1: nice fall day.
0: Right. There's where, hundreds of people.
1: Yeah. The most frequented state park in Wisconsin is Devil's Lake. A uh, great time to go is in the fall yeah. with color changes. And it's, it's amazing. Somebody. Like, as, as for now, literally got away with murder.
0: Yeah. So, like you said before, it's a, it's a beautiful place, but it also can be a dangerous place as well.
1: So, despite the millions of annual visitors to Devil's Lake State Park each year, it still holds its mysteries. Mysteries we may not solve in our lifetime. Like, who were the actual architects of the large effigy mounds scattered throughout the park? Including an enigmatic mound depicting a man with horns and a headdress. It's the only anthropomorphic mound found in all of North America. And it's only a short drive from the park. And it's called Man Mountain Park. And it's worth oh, going yeah. to see.
0: I didn't, I didn't know he had horns.
1: Yeah. Is he, well, so he has a headdress, but it resembles horns. It almost looks like the god pan.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. So we're not quite sure. We talked about the ceremonial nature of them and surveying them and only being able to really get the whole picture of the mounds from the air. So we'd have to question why were they made, who made them, and, you know, for what purpose. Mm -hmm. So the Native American tribes of the region clearly held the Devil's Lake area in high regard, passing along legends for generations. And what about those heroes of the high plains of existence? The Thunderbirds. They may have defeated the water spirits and flew north, but it's still possible to see them in a different battle altogether. The local high school's athletic team's name is, you guessed it, the Baraboo Thunderbirds. Now, Wisconsin composer Michael Sweeney even wrote a piece of concert band music that depicts the timeless tale. Now, according to the Hal Leonard website that sells the sheet music, Mm -hmm. you'll experience plenty of vivid imagery in this creative portrayal of an ancient battle between water serpents and giant thunderbirds. Dark sonorities and driving percussion contrast with delicate melodies and rich harmonies for a striking musical experience. So Mm. give it a listen. We'll put in the show notes. And uh, we hope you enjoyed our deep dive into Devil's Lake.
0: All right, hopefully we'll see you out there in the hiking trail sometime. Until next time, I'm Mike with American Ghost Walks. We have haunted history tours in nearby Wisconsin Dells, nearby Madison, uh, that you can check out if you're interested in learning more of the legends and ghost stories and paranormal of the area.
1: And I'm Jeff Fennup with Badgerland Legends, and you can check me out at Badgerland Legends on Facebook and Instagram, badgerlandlegends.com, and I give you a legend a day. From Wisconsin.
0: All right, we'll see you guys with the deep ones next time on Wisconsin Legends. Hey guys, real quick, this is Mike from Wisconsin Legends Podcast coming at you, letting you know that Jeff and I will be working on Season 2 of Wisconsin Legends coming up right after this Halloween 2022. So please, if you go to WisconsinLegendsPodcast.com, you can go to the bottom of the screen and hit subscribe, and we'll tell you when the new episodes are out, or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, you will find Wisconsin Legends.